From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. So before we jump into uh, today's sort of topic on Big Red, as I'm, I'm going to call it, <laughs> what, you know, obviously we start off this, this episode, every episode was sort of what we've been drinking. And, you know, th- there was a pretty big holiday for both of us recently. And uh-huh. uh, it's a pretty big alcohol holiday, not like getting wasted, but, you know, wines has a big, you know, sort of component to it. So I'm curious, what have you been drinking, Zach? Well, you know, it's uh, it wasn't necessarily in preparation for today's episode, but I did sort of in in uh, in thinking about it, it was appropriate that for Passover I had a couple of full bodied red wines, uh, a couple of different one a Cabernet Sauvignon from here in Washington from uh, Beja, which is a winery in Walla Walla. And Adam, as you might recall, we had Dan Wampler when we did a live episode also uh, with Kyle McLaughlin uh, for um, it was the Great American Drinks uh, what was it? Great American Drinks Festival something yeah. or other that we did last year. Uh, and so Dan uh, is Kyle's winemaker, but also is a winemaker at a Beha. And so uh, it was a really lovely kind of, you know, just very enjoyable bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon. And part of the reason why I picked it is because, as you know, you know, the Seder involves a lot of drinking before you have any food. And so it made sense yes. to me to pick a wine that I knew I was going to enjoy both before eating and then also with the meal, which is where a lot of these wines, uh, I think, perform really, really well. So yeah, that was kind of my thing. Um, also a wine from another Walla Walla winery, the Col 41 there, uh, Perigui, uh, which is like a Bordeaux style blend. So Cabernet Merlot based blend, um, but both were delicious and, uh, you know, helped me think about this topic a little bit more. How about Interesting. you? Well, so first of all, you made me think about something that I want to address, which is uh, before I talk about what I drank this week, which is what I drank two weeks ago because it was so sad. So oh, no. two weeks ago, you and I were going back and forth, uh, Right after the podcast, I was saying, you know, I was thinking about what what I was making for dinner Friday. So basically, I think we've talked about this, but in COVID, sort of Friday and Saturday nights, if we don't, you know, I we try to like make it a little more special if I'm cooking at home and we open a nice bottle of wine. Um, and I remember I told you that I was like making a steak, but Naomi's a vegetarian. And so I was going to open the baby bear for from Pursued by Bear that Dan made and I popped it. Oh, and no. it was like the most corked wine I've ever smelled. <sighs> and I was so bummed. That's a so bummer. bummed. So Kyle and uh, Dan, if you're listening, <laughs> and you want to send Adam a new bottle. I'm so glad that was, didn't happen during the live podcast recording though. That would have, I mean, it would have been instructive, I guess, but boy, it would have sucked. Have it you had that so happen to sad. you dining out somewhere where you've had a corked bottle? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. But you know what's weird is you know I've had it happen sometimes when the server doesn't believe me, which is really Ooh. lovely, uh, really lovely. That actually happened at a restaurant in COVID dining outside, and I felt bad and said it was corked, and the uh, the server was like, "This isn't corked. You just don't know what old wine tastes like." That's literally what they said to me, and I was like, "No, this is corked." And I happened to be with, and I happened to be with a friend who's like, who's a journalist but not a wine journalist. He writes at the Times, and he's a big wine person too. And he's like, "No, this is corked." Like why? Like why? This isn't because the wine was old. We happened to find like a random gem on their list that was like you know an old Italian bottle that for whatever reason was you know sixty five bucks a bottle and it was a uh-huh. two thousand like five. And I was uh-huh. like, no, don't say that to me. Like that's not also cool. like, like, like five. The is wine not, is co- it's old, right. but it's not like it's not like you opened a a nineteen fifty seven bottle and the the server could realistically be like you probably haven't had a lot of wine of this age. But like two thousand five is not like fifteen year old Italian wine is not that old. Yeah, and so then like the server came back. Now we're on a crazy tangent, but then yeah, the server came back and was like, 
uh, I'm going to decant it because it's definitely not corked. And again, I said, well, is the, is the, is, is the beverage director here or the person who buys wine? They're like, the person who buys the wine is one of the owners and he's not here tonight. And I was like, okay, cool, fine, decant it. And we were like, yeah, it's still corked. I was like, can you please, you know, can you please open another bottle? And they were like, we'll see if we have any left. And of course they did. And they opened it. And it was totally different. And I, and I literally said to the server, I'm not trying to be a dick, but can you smell both? And do you see the difference? The server literally straight said to me, I don't see the difference. I don't smell the difference. And I was like, oh my God. <sighs> it was bad. But anyways, so yeah, that was really a huge bummer. Uh, really big bummer. But this for Passover for me, I, I had two really cool wine experiences actually. So the first night, um, I don't think people know this, but we have an article that's about to come out about it. Uh, so Maya Kamas is probably one of the most revered, you know, wineries in Napa, right? And they make incredible sure. Cabernet. We named their Cabernet, you know, the number one wine on Vine Pairs Top 50 a few years ago. So I don't think that people know that the winery now is owned by Orthodox Jews. I didn't know this. And they keep kosher. Okay. So they can't drink Maya Kamas. That would be so a bummer. Maya Kamas is making a version that's kosher. Oh. And they mentioned it to me, and I was like, "I don't keep kosher, you know. Uh, we don't care about the wine, you know. We're not even, we're not even like from that Jewish family. That, like the wine has to be kosher at, pa- at Passover for whatever reason. You know, like I have tons of friends who yeah. are like, for some reason, I got to bring kosher wine. I'm like, oh, it's you know, but you know, we do obviously not have like cheese on the table during Passover and stuff like that. But we uh, we drink still the wines we like, um, sure. just like you did. And but they sent me. They're like, do you want to try them? Uh, because they sent them to Katie too on our team who's writing the article because we just thought it was so crazy and cool. Again, a fact not a lot of people know. And they sent them to me. And yeah, like so basically, you know, the way the wine's kosher is that they keep it separate. They follow all the kosher guidelines. I'm not going to go into them here. But then it's basically the exact same Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. Um, and it was really awesome to be drinking these two kosher Maya Kamas Cabernets for um, for Passover. It was just like nuts. Nice. And I posted it on Instagram and I had so many people commenting being like, what? Like, what is this? Um, yes, I, I had the same response when I saw it, although I don't think I uh, messaged you about it. But yeah, yeah I, like, I had no like, idea. What? Then the other thing, though, that was really crazy. So, of course, we drank those two bottles and I should have known better. I mean, I brought other wine, too. I'm like now, of course, responsible for bringing the wine to sure. any family function. And I brought more white than red. I think this is that, that's what I was in the mood for. And again, I think, you know, so so both of the Maya Kamases came out on the first night and were finished. And I'd also brought a Syrah and that came out on the first night and was finished. And all my beautiful whites that were sitting in the refrigerator <laughs> did not get drunk. So I was like, shit, I got to go to like the, the Pennsylvania State Store. Uh-huh. So I go and I walk into the State Store and I'm like looking around and I will say, I feel people's pain who all you have is a state store, right? Like it's very much the biggest brand you can find on the shelves and you really have to dig. But I went with my brother-in-law and we went to the Italian section, which was pretty small because we went to one of the smaller state stores that was closest to the house. And sitting on the shelf was three bottles of 2013 uh, Pio Cesare Dolcetto for oh, nice. – like $19 a bottle, $18.99. So we bought them and they were amazing. And it was like really cool to be drinking, you know, eight-year-old wine, uh, seven-year-old wine, whatever, at, you know, at Passover and sort of showing people that that this wine is a wine that could age because, you know, I think a lot of people don't think Dolcetto can age, um, but this one was really, really beautiful still, you know, um, and was just cool and fun and uh, a, a neat find. So I said to... You know, Naomi, man, maybe like next time we come, I need to like go to Pennsylvania State Stores and just do digging. 
because yeah. there maybe there are some fines on the shelf that they're like, yeah, whatever. That was the price we bought bought for. We're not marking this up. It's it is what it is. We we charge the same if we had the 2018 or whatever. Um, yeah, you so only that was you just run funny. the the one risk is like you got to find the part of the store that hasn't been like you know it's not sitting in direct sunlight because totally. uh, you know you know the bottles have not moved since they were you know put on the shelf in 2015 totally. or whatever. <laughs> totally. Um, but so yeah, before we, we kick off the topic though, I did want to mention I want to bring something else up, which is that you know I did see. Uh, Two weeks ago, um, you posted, and it was also in the news that you know the Dahlia Lounge, which was the restaurant that you've worked at for 13 years, is not going to reopen post COVID. Yeah. Uh, so, first of all, I wanted to just offer my condolences because I mean, Thanks. you know, so many people are going through this, and this absolutely sucks. You started as a sommelier there; you were the beverage, you know, beverage educate head beverage educator, um, and you know, I think a lot of people who listen to this show are going through this too, because while a lot of restaurants are reopening, a lot of them aren't. Uh, yeah. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts that you wanted to share about just sort of what that has been like for you going through all of this and sort of what your memories are of uh, the Dahlia as well. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Adam. I mean, I think that you you said it in some sense, which is that, you know, this is a story that, you know, that the specifics of Dahlia Lounge not reopening are, you know, are what they are and have a lot to do with a lot of forces that you and I have talked about um, on the podcast and we'll continue to talk about about how restaurant industry broadly restaurants um, in various cities are, are, are changing and, and having to adapt, not just to life with a pandemic, but life after a pandemic. And, and a lot of those forces, I think conspired against Dahlia lounge and against a lot of other restaurants of its ilk. Um, and, um, and I would say that I would, I personally, and, and I know this, I think true for you, Adam, also, you know, listeners, if you have stories like this, you know, restaurants that you worked at or, or dined at or whatever that, that have announced that have already announced they're not, they're not reopening, um, or whatever, and you want to share them with us, um, I would be, you know, I would love to read a little bit about that. So email us podcast at um, and just, you know, drop us a line. We'd be, maybe we'll even share some of them on the podcast. If, um, if, if there are some, some touching stories um, for me, I think a lot of it is just, you know, um, it's a restaurant I worked at for, as you said, for 13 years. I, you know, I started working there when I was 23 years old and, um, you know, went through a lot of different life events changes you know my wife and I had our rehearsal dinner there um you know there there were lots and lots of things that, that lots of memories and and more than I than I could uh, reasonably fit into uh, a little moment here but I think the the things I were the two things I was going to say in, in light of it are one um I think it's important for for all of us to remember that um you know restaurants are you know anyone who's a who's a diner at a restaurant and certainly anyone who goes back, you know, multiple times, whether you're a regular in the once a month sense or once a year sense or whatever, you know, um, restaurants provide a really unique facet in society and a, and a thing that for many of us is, is integral to celebrating important moments, whether they're birthdays, anniversaries, um, you know, just big life moments, whatever they are. And one of the saddest things for me about all this is thinking of our many regulars who, who did count on a meal at Dahlia Lounge for, uh, a way to celebrate a big moment in their life again, birthday, anniversary, graduation, et cetera. And for how many of them will just, that will not be a thing that they can do going forward. Uh, and I think it's also uh, important for us to to think about, you know, and for all of you listening, whether you're working in the industry or, or just, uh, you know, a restaurant goer, you know, we're at this inflection point and we'll be at one for the next year or two where the face of dining in America can change really, really fundamentally you know, there are going to be fewer and fewer restaurants that offer full service dining. I think, you know, it's just expensive and difficult. And there's also been a tremendous talent drain over the last year on the industry. And a lot of people who 
were laid off like I was are not going to go back. You know, they've found other work. They're going to do other things. They're not interested in the lack of security that it turns out that industry provides. And so they're just going to be real challenges. And so, you know, we all, you know, we all make decisions. We all vote with our dollars and our, you know, make purchase decisions that way. And, you know, I'd encourage those of you listening, and I'm sure most of you are already doing this, but think about the places that are reopening, that are open, um, that matter to you. And, and, you know, think about, you know, trying to support them just, just by, by being a guest, you know, you don't have to do more than that. It's not, no one's asking for donations at this point, I don't think, but it's, it's just about, you know, the places that you want to have in your life, the restaurants that you want to have open, the places you want for those special occasions, you know, maybe you make a little more effort to go to them more than just for a special occasion every once in a while. Cause you know, it's just restaurants are, are fragile. And, uh, and I felt that very acutely, um, you know, over this last year, but especially when the not surprising news came out and, um, yeah, it was, it was a sad day for me and, uh, and for, you know, for all the, the Dahlia Lounge team and, and for, as Adam said, you know, for the many, many, many people across the country who have had a similar type of restaurant uh, or whatever restaurant they worked at, uh, not reopen. It's just, you know, it's, it's a tragedy in a way and, um, we'll, we'll remember them. At least I certainly will. Yeah, man, it's it's not easy. And, you know, you made me think about something as you were talking. Uh, you mentioned something that maybe is even another episode, um, you know, or it becomes this episode. Just kidding. Uh, we already did the intro. But um, which is, I think, what we've all realized over the last year, or maybe we haven't realized. I think maybe maybe those of us who covered and worked is how much restaurants truly depend on regulars Mm -hmm. and the question of how much our culture had pushed against that in the last decade with, I mean, look, Vinepair doesn't really write a ton about, you know, this is the hottest bar you have to go to right now, but there are a lot of publications that say this is, you know, that rate restaurants and, um, you know, give them points and things like that and say, this is the hottest thing you need to eat at right now. And that did create a culture. And then of course the, the, the user experience, you know, the user platforms that did the same thing, you know, create a culture that said, man, I I need to be the person that goes to the buzziest at all times. Right. And I think there was already a big, you know, sort of a lot of noise in the restaurant industry amongst owners about how damaging this type of stuff was for them. Right. And how they were already watching that, like you almost had to reinvent yourself every two years yeah. because consumers were reading these, these types of publications and then they were, then they were moving on really quickly or they were on social looking at people post food porn photos and like moving on really quickly. Um, and that really hurt a lot of restaurants that people actually okay. remembered then afterwards, how much they loved in the pandemic. Like, Oh shit. You mean that place isn't going to come back and didn't realize that like, it it wasn't just because of the pandemic that these places were closing. It was because that behavior that was encouraged by a lot of, you know, publications and rating review sites, et cetera, prior to this was already hurting them. Yeah. And, you know, they were already on their last legs, whether they were putting on a good show or not, you know, putting on that, that bright smiling face to try to get the, the consumers to come back. But without, you know, a huge amount of regulars, it just wasn't possible. And the neighborhood restaurant was dying. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I hope that post pandemic, we let the neighborhood restaurant come back and we were not just thinking about the buzziest. I got to go to the, the CNB scene place every single day. I know that like, you may not be able to prevent that in Manhattan. I'm hoping though <laughs> in Brooklyn that stops, yeah. you know, that like, 
the restaurants I love in my neighborhood and that I, I, I counted on even during the pandemic will stay and that my neighborhood will continue to support those restaurants and we won't, you know, see some of my favorites reinvent themselves in, you know, a year or two because they just haven't had press and their crowds aren't the same. Um, yeah. I, I really hope that that's the case. And and look, the same did happen at some extent, in some extent for bars. Um, but I think, you know, bars ha- have had stronger staying power in New York, like Death & Co is still going strong. Right. Yeah. It's still a place people really want to get into. Same with PDT, things like that. It, it just wasn't the same as restaurants. And I think that's because the drinks publications like ourselves and others just don't do that as much in terms of like what's the buzziest. But, you know, I, I do think that that's been a contributing factor. And, you know, so you mentioning regulars is really important for people to, to think about. Like you really have to, you know, very much think about the places you want to support and support them. Uh, so when, yeah, when, when you, when you're vaccinated and you feel comfortable going back to, to, to eat, if you haven't already go to the places you love, if they're still yeah. open or they're, or they're reopening because they're going to need support or they're not going to be there. And I think to just one last point on this before we move on is, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to deal with the sort of interaction between regulars and, and a restaurant on both ends. You know, I, I've obviously served many, many regulars in my life, but also been a regular at some other restaurants and, I'll just say this, there's no, you'll never have a relationship with a restaurant as meaningful as being a regular at a restaurant. Like there is, there is nothing I think in the dining world as rewarding and you can throw me your three-star Michelin restaurants and your, you know, incredibly trendy spots. And like, those can be really fun and, and exciting. And I certainly enjoy those dining experiences too. But, but the thought of and the feeling of walking into a place being known, I mean, you know, feeling comfortable, feeling like, you know, you know, some of the, you know, the staff a little bit, like it's just, you know, we, restaurants are, are meant to be places where people feel welcome and feel comfortable and feel, you know, almost at home, but also, you know, you don't have to deal with all the bullshit you have to deal with at home. And, and if you don't ever build that relationship, if you treat restaurants like, you know, trading cards or, uh, you know, a collectible of any sort where it's just, Hey, I got to say, I've been to this place once, you know, the stamp on the passport mentality. I mean, to me, I just don't see how that can be as satisfying. And, And I don't really think even the people who do that are really truly satisfied by it because, you know, in the end, it's just, do you even remember that place a year later? I don't think you do. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it is really amazing what what it is, what it it's like to be a regular. Um, and I think, you know, people get away from it when you, when you're, when you want to say you've, you know, been to all the places everyone else is talking about, but, you know, you walk in and then you wonder why that treatment is, is always feels the same is because they don't know you. Whereas there's someone who who probably is a regular at that buzzy place that you randomly scored a reservation for that seems to always get the great reservation. Yeah, it's because they're a regular, <laughs> and there, yeah. there's you know there's notes in their in their reserva- you know in the system that give them the better table and they give them the better service and because they go they come and they support and that's what the restaurant needs you know so anyways with, with you know already already pretty deep into our episode yeah uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, this conversation you know around sort of the disconnect that we've seen, uh, you know, um, in terms of a consumer preference for fuller bodied red wines and sort of, a, you know, trade preference for lighter bodied high acid wine. So you were the one that sort of initially brought this to my attention. So why don't you kick us off and then, you know, we can, we can go from there. Sure. Well, I think it, you know, it's, there's always been a little bit of attention, or at least in, in the time that I've been in the restaurant and, and beverage alcohol industry, Attention between sort of what the people who run wine programs and, and to some extent the people in the sort of wine trade and, and wine press more broadly are interested in and what consumers want. 
you know, it was a thing for me running wine programs that, you know, inevitably my biggest selling category were Cabernet Sauvignons and Cabernet Base Blends. And that no matter my own personal preferences, I would be derelict in my duty as a wine director to not put a lot of time and energy and devote a decent amount of list space to that category. And that, you know, claiming to people who say, come in and say, I like a big red wine. I like Cabernet Sauvignon. Well, actually, you know, you would prefer this other thing. We're trying to kind of, you know, move the consumer too much is, is both a kind of egocentric move on the part of most wine directors or restaurants. And frankly, I think bad business. Like, I think there's something to be said about building a list that offers people opportunities to try new things, to, to diversify, but also gives lots of people safe landing spots and gives people wine that they're familiar with. In the end, you know, the, the hospitality industry is about exactly that, hospitality. And part of hospitality is telling someone, yeah, absolutely, this thing you love, sure, we've got that for you. And there are always going to be limits. You're not going to be able to stock every single wine. You're going to have to make decisions, you know, no matter the size of your program, about excluding some things. But, but you know, to, to build a wine program that does not meet the consumer most of the way where they are is, I think, just to, to do something for reasons that I find off-putting and, and again, ego-driven as opposed to about really serving the, the guest. And so, to me, I think you see this a lot in the seemingly endless attempts to convince the wine drinking public that the wines they love, big full-bodied red wines, number one selling category in America, that they actually want obscure, you know, European variety X, high acid, tart red fruit, you know, almost like clear, you know, light, you know, pale red color. Like, actually, this is the wine you want. And it's just like, no, it's not. (laughs) I mean, part of it is Americans have a culture of drinking wine without food. And I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue the sort of pushback I'm sure I'm going to get, which is like, well, these big red wines don't pair well with food. To which I would say after, you know, as mentioned, you know, 15 years of restaurant experience, who the fuck cares? Your consumer mostly doesn't care. They're used to drinking big red wines and they're used to eating whatever they eat with it. And that, and and again, if you, if your conception of your job, your role is so tied up in, I must convince this person who has these things they love that they will give you money for that they are wrong and that, and that you will show them the light. Like, again, you're just, I don't think you're doing it for the right reason. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Like, look, my personal preference, and and then I want to get into why, why you think it is because we, we definitely have theories, but, um, look, my personal preference is high acid reds, but that's, been because because I've drank a lot of wine throughout my you know career and that's what I'm into right now. But I definitely have an appreciation for the fuller bodied reds and I understand why people like them. And I don't think anyone is wrong for liking them or less of a cons- you know educated consumer. Um, and I do think it's really interesting, you know, to to assume right that you know these wines have a have a problem and i think the biggest thing that has been so like eye-opening for me is we've talked about this before but like when i hear people say to me who are in the industry you know napa's gonna have a huge issue you know the young people aren't gonna go to napa they're just not gonna drink napa wines and i'm like who are you talking to when I when 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 I go to wine festivals or whatever you know in Atlanta and L.A. and wherever, and I'm talking to consumers that come up to me, they tell me that they're the region that's on their bucket list to, to visit with their friends or significant other, whatever, is Napa. 
you know, and then when I ask them what wines they drink, they say wines like Camus, you yeah. know, like they, they say, they say wines like, I mean, look, so, so many, yes, some of them say ashes and diamonds, but like the majority of them say these, these big Napa cabs. And I don't know why we are as an industry saying that that's bad, right? Like we don't have to make everybody drink Beaujolais. I really enjoy Beaujolais, but not everyone has to drink Beaujolais. If they don't, and if they don't like it, you don't need to make them feel bad for it. And you don't need to feel bad that you like it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like yeah. everyone just needs to get over themselves in terms of no one is trying to offend somebody else by somebody not liking something. But when people, when the majority of the data points to one style of wine that people like, we don't have to say, well, they must not know what they're doing. Yes, that's the problem in my mind. The, the thing that I don't like is when someone tells you, oh, I like, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley. I like Camus. I like The Prisoner. I like Big Red Blends, whatever, right? There is a fundamental issue and, a, and a, a reflex on the part of a lot of people in the wine industry to be like, well, let me explain to you why you're wrong, right? Yeah. Let me, you just, you just haven't tried the right alternative wines. And like in some small percentage of the case of cases, that might be true, right? There might be people who just, you know, wine is something that they don't think a lot about. They drink wine on occasion. They drink wine maybe when they're out to dinner with friends or family, maybe for, for special occasions, but it's not an everyday thing. I mean, you and I and sommeliers and wine writers stuff, we live and breathe this stuff, right? This is our everyday. And so of course we're well appraised of all the many options or most of them. And we try lots of wines and, and that's fine. But for most people, you know, wine is something they don't have all that often, or if they do, you know, they may not think about it a lot. They might belong to a wine club because they had a great experience somewhere. They might buy wine at the grocery store and they, and they're, you know, sort of behold or the state control store or whatever. They're beholden to this election that's put in front of them. And, and they like those wines. I mean, it, it's just, I, I, it's the height of arrogance to me to, to tell someone who says, I like this to be like, actually, no, you don't, you're wrong. You know, you can try and explain to someone in a setting, maybe if you're graceful and gentle about it, why they might also like something else. I mean, that's how I always try to frame it with people who were like, you know, oh, here's what we like. Um, and, you know, if I didn't have that or I had something else that would be a better fit, I would say that, you know, wonderful. Here's something else you might like. Not here's why the thing you like is wrong and you're going to suddenly change your purchase preferences based on some random asshole telling you otherwise or some article or, you know, or, you know, TikTok video or whatever. I no, think I mean, the other piece of it. No, go ahead, Adam. I was saying it's, it's just going to turn people off, and I think yeah. you know we've we've used this analogy before, but like it reminds me of for those that are you know remember this amazing movie. You know, it reminds me of Zach Black's character in High Fidelity, yeah. where it's like the you know it's the music snob basically being like, wait, you like this mainstream band? Like you don't like music? And yeah. no, that <laughs> you still like music. Like music is there's so many different genres of music and varieties of music. It doesn't just have to be what like, you know, indie music people who work in music all day want to listen to. The reason indie music people who work in music all day don't want to listen to pop all the time is because there is a formula to pop. Like there is things about pop music that, you know, if you, if you spend enough time working in music, you can say like, Oh wow, this is, you know, derivative of this derivative of this derivative of this. And, and so you'd say, Oh, I want to listen to something different. Even though when you go into the indie rock spectrum or whatever, they all, are, are copying each other too in some way. Yeah. But what, but whatever let's, let's pretend that they're original, right? Uh, like in, in the same way where, and that's, that's why, you know, I think you and I have gotten called out before for being like anti-natural wine. I'm not anti-natural wine. I'm anti the movement. Yeah. Right? I, I have a problem with the movement that's telling people if they don't like it, they don't get it. That's, yeah. that's what I'm anti. Right. And so my issue here is like, just a quick example. 
you know, um, someone on our staff posted an image of a, of a, of a pretty mainstream wine and how great it was for people who they knew drink that wine and, you know, can find that wine because that wine's available in a large amount of retailers. And they got like a lot of like hate comments back. And I got comments back to like, how dare you post that wine? Like no one should be drinking that wine. Like for, for the category, this is a great wine. Yeah. If you're unable to see that, that's fine, but you need to get out. You need to like get out of your own feelings because you're inside your feelings right now. And that's not what we're here for. We're here to tell the consumers who do like that wine, that this is great. And they should feel good about liking that wine. We're not here to make people feel bad for that. Like, obviously I'm not going to sit here and say that like, you know, you should, you should be drinking uh Chateau Diana from the CVS and compare and telling me that that's equal to, you know, actual wine. That's a wine product. You guys, it's a wine product. I don't need to tell you anymore. It's a wine product. It's a wine product. But <laughs> like for, if you like anything else, that's good. As you know, we talked about this before. It gets people into wine. Yeah. So that's ugh, just so infuriating. I think the other piece of this is, and I think there's two other pieces. One is, and I think the the rock or the indie music comparison is a great one. I think there's a cynical motive to it in a lot of cases where, you know, telling someone about why they should drink Napa Cab or Big Reds, you can't make a name for yourself, right? You can't you can't create a you can't create a business around it really. Those, you know, those wineries are already generally well represented. The wines are are distributed by you know, established companies. They have established relationships and reputations. And if you're someone who is an ambitious person in yep. wine, it makes a lot more sense to become an advocate for, you know, obscure European region or grape, you know, style that's not as in vogue because you can make a name for yourself or, you know, natural wine or whatever. And I think whether they're conscious of that or not, I think that's what causes a lot of people to gravitate towards it. Because again, you can be the face of a trend as opposed to the person who's just selling the wine that people actually like. And the other part of it is, and I think this is, this comes back to something else that reinforces is, you know, as mentioned, especially pre pandemic, but, but even in the pandemic, you know, you and I taste a lot of wine professionally. Like it's just yeah. our job, right? We, we taste a lot of things. We get samples, we go to tastings or we did go to tastings, things like that. And when you're in that setting, I won't deny that the generally speaking, the fresher, higher acid styles of red wine are often a little more enjoyable, you know. Yeah, they stand they, and they and they stand out more. Yeah, and you drink a lot of full-bodied red wine, especially that might be a little higher in alcohol, and pretty quickly you get fatigued. But again, who gives a shit unless you are a professional and no one cares about what your personal drinking habits are really. If you are a consumer, you're someone who just likes to drink wine. You don't give a shit if after tasting 30 of them you can't tell the difference because no one is ever going to do that. They're going to drink a single bottle at a time, right? And so and so, again, this inability of, of people, whether they're sommeliers, wine directors, retail operators, or, or writers in some cases, to get out of their own head and get out of their own, you know, kind of like this world experience and think like, okay, but are, is anyone I'm communicating to, is my, is my guest going to view wine this way? Are my readers or listeners going to view wine this way? And so for so many of them, I think the answer is, of course not, because they're drinking a bottle every third night. They're not tasting 50 wines a day. So, so it's just, it, it's such a stupid and self-centered, short-sighted way of looking at this product that you work with that I, I just, it drives me crazy. Yeah, it, it drives me bonkers. And I think, the other thing too is like, it's going to take decades for, if ever, for the regions that you are pushing, right, to be considered regions worthy of like buying during a special occasion. Right. So like, you know, right. If, if someone came to 
the Dahlia Lounge and they were celebrating a momentous anniversary or, you know, a big promotion or whatever, were you going to be more easily able to sell them a Napa cab? Or were you going to be able to somehow convince them that they should try this, you know, red wine that's, you know, from this region of France that like maybe it's a little like Napa cab, but but it's more your style of higher acid, more fruit, less oak. Like probably not. (laughs) More to the point, presumably the the Napa cab is going to sell for a lot more than your obscure, you know, Southwestern France, you know, Mataran or whatever. Like for one, it's just bad business, but it's also like, yeah, it's again, it's just kind of like, you know, you were talking about this and I think Napa is a great illustration of this in, in a way that, you know, sort of champagne is also like for a lot of consumers, you know, part of what they're buying when they order bottle of buy or order a bottle of wine from Napa Valley is the sense of luxury and prestige that goes along with it. And again, if you're not honest with yourself, at least about that as a buyer or as a, as a sommelier or as a whatever, you're, you're just deluding yourself. Like that matters to people. The fact that they've heard of Napa Valley, they may have been there. They, they can spell it and pronounce it is always going to resonate with most consumers in a way that yes, there is a subset of consumers who get off on novelty and and having the ability to say, I tried something new today. And that's great. And recognizing those people and meeting them where they are is also really important. And having a list that's just Napa Cab is also bad. That's not a good wine program either. But but one right. that just that takes the bulk of wine drinkers and treats them as, you know, kind of idiot children who who must be shown the error of their ways by you, the noble psalm, or or who must be, you know, kind of clued into the, the wine that they truly will love because they can't possibly love the well-established wine that you, the wine writer are, are so sick of and over like, it's just, it's just ego. It's just ego. And, and, and again, a self-centeredness that I find so appalling. And it's one thing, it's one thing if you're a winemaker or, or something, and you want to tell people about the wines that you make and you don't make wine in a, in a well-known region, you make wine from an unusual variety, or maybe you're a, an importer or a distributor. And even then I'm starting, we're starting to get away from the point, but if it's a thing you make, fine. But as a sommelier, as a writer, you are not in any way involved in the production of that product and inflating your own ego around something that literally you did nothing to other than maybe take a corkscrew to is just, again, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's masturbation. And I find that to be really unpleasant uh, in a public setting. Can I share one huge pet peeve with you? Please. My, my biggest, my biggest pet peeve is when you go to like a, a wine shop or to a restaurant and they have a classic region on the list and not a single bottle from that classic region is indicative of what made that region, <laughs> is representative of what yeah. made that region classic. That not indicative representative that just pisses me off because if I wanted like maybe I'm at dinner with someone who's never had, uh, I don't know, let's say, who can I pick on right now? Northern Rhone Syrah before or something, right? Yeah. Sa- from San Josef, right? And all you have is like super natty versions. I'm not, I can't, I, I can't. <laughs> I yeah. want to show someone what makes like that region so amazing for Syrah. And I want yeah, them to see the like, fruit. And, like it just it kills me, dude. And it I mean, maybe, maybe now we're talking like, you know, first world big city problems. But when that does happen, it's just so frustrating. Cause I'm like, again, what you're saying, it's I get it. You want to have a few of those bottles because you want to be different and you want to be a little quirky and you want to show that there is diversity in that region. Awesome. I think you totally should have. But to be all and not have one or two that is representative, that's when it really, really bothers me. 
Well, and I think it's to, to come back almost to the point where we started in a little bit. I also think, and this is something that I worked on, um, kind of changing my own mindset about uh, as I evolved and matured as a buyer. It's like, it's also important to have like some recognizable names, right? You know, whatever the category is, especially if it's a, a chunk of your, a good chunk of your list, if it's, you know, if it's Napa Cab, you should have some established producers on there as well as maybe, you know, you know, you want, like it's, you want to have a mix probably, but it's good to have benchmark producers or classic producers that people are going to re- recognize. So, you know, yes, Phelps or Heights or something like that. So that they, they, people who, who might know the category a little bit, but aren't, you know, deep in understanding the, you know, what is new and what is changing, even in a, what feels sometimes like a kind of static place like Napa, you know, you want to have both ideally, but certainly if you're only going to have a couple, they should be largely classic representations because someone who looks at a list that has wine from all over the world and you have five selections from, you know, five red wines from Bordeaux, if four of them are, you know, weird right bank appellations that are, you know, Entre du know, mer. Un- <laughs> yeah, and they're, and they're, you know, they're unoaked and, you know, uh, you know, short maceration times and are just like, it's like, well, why is someone going to like, I, that's just, you're doing a bad job. Like you're just, yeah. you're, you're just, you know, if you're a, if you're a, a, a restaurant with an immense French list and you want to have, you know, 40 Bordeaux offerings, and some of them are that for the people who like that kind of wine or want to try Bordeaux, but, but whose budget is maybe a little less or something. Great. But, but again, yeah, it's just, it, it's so much about this is really, you know, the thing that you and I rail against a lot, which is, you know, uh, whatever you are, whether you're a, again, a, a retail shop owner, uh, a, um, a restaurateur or a, a sommelier, a wine director, or, or again, a writer, a member of the press, putting your, your own ego and your own self ahead of the people you're ostensibly serving or writing for or, or whatever is just, it's, it's bad. It's, you're yeah. not doing a good job. Well, look, I think, and I think this comes to the moral of the story, which is that wine is the only industry that that I've ever been a part of. And I've, I haven't been a part of a lot, but I've been a part of obviously music for a long part of my career. I've been a part of now alcohol. So I'm talking now cocktails, beer and wine. And I've been a part of, you know, journalism in general. Wine's the only community that doesn't want to look at the fucking data. Like it's like data is bad. And yeah. I don't understand because the data would refute everything that people that the sort of influencers in wine are saying. That's not to say you still shouldn't also tell people to drink the things that you're interested in, but to push those like they're the only options is crazy to me. There's a reason when you walk into most breweries in America right now, everyone has a fucking hazy IPA on their list mm-hmm. because the data shows that that or is what sells. <laughs> yeah, or 10 of them, right? There is a reason that the majority of pop music sounds a lot alike right now because when people look at the billboard charts <laughs> they they are very aware of what the majority of the country wants to listen to and when people look in spirits the same right they they are always looking at like what's up what's down there's a reason everyone's moving into tequila why are all the celebrities moving into tequila not because they all live in LA and they're like really interested in agave it's because when you look at the data tequila is the fastest rising spirit in America right now it is very quickly catching bourbon right? It's very quickly catching whiskey. It's catching vodka, right? So that is why. But wine's like, oh, we don't want to look at that. You know, I don't, what, a red blend? Oh, that doesn't exist. I don't want to look at that data. That thing continues to grow. Like pe- people don't care. And then they complain about the big companies who continue to grow and be like, eh, I hate the big orders. Why? Because they look at data. <laughs> yeah. Like, they and again, look at data. <laughs> I think that there's a space and a place for, especially on the production side, for winemakers to say, this is what I want to make. 100%. But, you should. And, and, I, and I think that winemakers recognize in a, in a fundamental way because they're, they're, they're the, you know, they, they make the thing that if you choose to make an, 
an unusual variety or a, a wine in a different style, you know that you're capping your your market for it. And that's fine if you're making a few hundred cases or something. And, and but if you're but as a restaurant, as a as a retail shop even potentially, you don't necessarily have the ability. Maybe if you're a, a wine bar, right? And you have a very specific vibe, you know, you that's fine. People will will seek you out who want that kind of thing. But but in anything that's that's more all purpose than that, you know, your guests are going to come with all levels of experience and preferences. But the one thing they're they're all, most of them are going to have in common is that their favorite wine style is a red blend or a Cabernet Sauvignon or something like that. And if you can't meet that need, you're just you're doing a bad job, dude. I agree. And like, look again, I love the producers that do whatever they want. You know, like just like I like going to the small indie brewers who are making styles that aren't just you know New England IPA. But I also do appreciate a New England IPA. I, I, I'm I'm a haze boy every once in a while. You know, mm-hmm. as Cat likes to to tease me, and I like you know all kinds of wine. For me, because I'm in the industry and I'm looking for you know, interesting stories and stuff, am I mostly gravitating towards those those producers that are going against the grain of the region and stuff? Of course, of course I am. But I think it's like it's just so stupid to put your head in the sand and try to pretend like you know the the large trends of the industry don't exist. Or that the large taste preferences of the industry don't exist, or as we've said repeatedly, make those people who have those flavor preferences feel like they're stupid, or they don't know what they're doing, or they're wrong and they're behind in the times, and they should grow up and get with the program, because that's just not cool, and that doesn't help anybody when it comes to drinking. That doesn't help the the overall industry of wine, and it doesn't help your bottom line. All true. Well, dude, this was a great episode. I, I loved you sharing your thoughts about uh, Dahlia Lounge. It, it's, you know, it was really, you know, powerful. And again, I want to reiterate to anyone who's listening to the podcast, if you uh, have worked somewhere that has gone out of business during COVID um, or is going to go out of business and you would like to share your stories, um, please, you know, email us at podcast.vimpair.com. We'd love to hear them. Maybe it winds up in a larger article. Maybe it winds up as a podcast episode. Um, but, you know, this has been Uh, uh, you know, uh, more than a year that's been very hard for everybody. And it'd be great to sort of hear some people's experiences. For sure. Yeah, we would love to. We'd love to hear them. Zach, talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible, and also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.